Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biota Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Gibson, and today I'm joined in the studio by one of my new co-hosts, Sam Huff, who's going to be with us for a few episodes. So, hey, Sam, how are you doing today? Hi, everybody. I'm doing well, and it's great to be here today. Most excellent. All right. Well, this episode is going to be a little bit different uh, from some of the other ones we've uh, put out. We're not really going to be talking about a scientific topic per se, but we are going to be talking about something that is extremely important to every scientist or even science student. And what is that topic today, Sam? In this episode, we'll explore the relationship between science and identity. To do that, we have an interview with Dr. Brian Dewsbury, a passionate educator, biologist, and a leading expert in the field of science identity. Today, he is joining us on the pod where he shares his insights, experiences, and knowledge on this fascinating topic. Science identity is more than just a buzzword. It's a concept that influences how we perceive ourselves in the world of science and how we engage with it. Now, whether you're a student, a teacher, or just a science enthusiast, understanding your science identity can have a profound impact on your journey in this world of discovery. Dr. Dewsbury has dedicated his career to studying the complex interplay between culture, societal factors, and personal experiences that shape our own science identity. As an educator, he's been instrumental in creating inclusive and equitable learning spaces that foster a desire to learn science in all students, regardless of their backgrounds. The interview dives deep into the world of science identity, and Dr. Dewsbury discusses how thinking about that as a student and as an educator can be a powerful force of change in STEM education. Dr. Dewsbury shares his personal journey, evidence from his research, and strategies for nurturing a positive science identity for everyone. So, whether you're a student who's curious about your own place in the scientific community, or a teacher looking to inspire the next generation of scientists, you won't want to miss this conversation with Dr. Brian Dewsbury. So, let's get to the interview. Today, I'm extremely happy to have Dr. Brian Dewsbury as a guest on the podcast. Dr. Dewsbury is an associate professor in the biological sciences at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. Dr. Dewsbury received his bachelor's degree at Morehouse College and a master's and PhD from Florida International University. While he was there, he studied marine biology and environmental economics. After several years on the faculty at the University of Rosa Island, he joined the biology faculty at FIU, where he is the principal investigator of the Science Education and Society Research Program. This program, which also goes by the acronym SEAS, studies the social context of teaching and learning in a variety of educational contexts. And so please join me in welcoming Dr. Brian Dewsbury to Biota. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Pleasure is all mine. So let's start um, with an easy question. You're a biologist mm -hmm. in general, uh, specifically a marine biologist. What does that mean to you when you say, I'm a biologist or I'm a marine biologist? Well, that's, a, that's actually a good question to start with because it's, it's a question that has come up with people who do similar things to what I do, which is, as you know, science education research. And, you know, your, your, your audience would probably know that we are typically called DBA faculty, which stands for Discipline-Based Education Research, which means that most of us got our PhDs in some basic science area. And then at some point, transition to doing education research full-time, right? It actually has been very intriguing to me, people identify in that space, because, you know, I will go to conferences, meetings, I'll be on calls, and I'll hear people say, you know, as a neuroscientist, or as a marine biologist and 
you know, for me, and this is just me, this is just me, and I'm trying to project to anybody here, but uh, if I'm going to take that moniker, I mean, there are things about marine bio, of course, I still understand, I still remember the research I did, I'm, I still am fascinated by marine biology, but I don't practice marine biology, right? I don't go on dives anymore, I don't design experiments around seagrasses, I don't I don't play in that space like I used to. So, so you know, you, you know, your question about like um, how do I identify as a marine biologist or a biologist? Um, I would really just more label myself as a biology education researcher. And in fact, I would just say science education researcher because that's what I actually do and practice, right? Um, and I know everybody has a slightly different take on that. Um, I know I think that there was great benefit to being a basic scientist for several years. Um, but I, I feel a little disingenuous saying marine biology when that's not my work currently. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfectly. And let's let's think about that. So you know, when you when you started out, so think about yourself. However many years ago, did you always want to be a biologist or a a biology education specialist? Was that sort of always a goal for you? Well, the goal historically was biologist. In fact, more specifically. Um, biological conservation um so I, I kind of came into biology for, with a conservation aspiration um the science education path really opened itself up when i was doing a phd um and it's, it's been great ever since and so as we think about you know you're you're identifying yourself as a specialist in science education or a, a deeper type of person mm -hmm. was there a moment when <clears throat> you said yeah, that's what I am. That became a part of your identity, the way you looked at yourself. And I guess what I'm trying to get at, was there, was there a certain event or maybe an experience that you said, yeah, I'm there? Um, I, I think it would be very difficult to identify one moment where the identity sort of solidified. What I think is perhaps more accurate is that over time, right, so that there was definitely a moment where I knew I was going to focus the rest of my professional life on education research. But I, I don't know if I would say in that moment I took on the identity. I would say it was just sort of a preference shift, right? You kind of found your calling and then you say, okay, I'm going to now orient my professional life around this thing. So I, I think what happened thereafter is really more of an accumulation of experiences, right? So the more you do, the more you teach, the more you think about your classroom in a certain way, the more you learn to write, in this space, the more you understand the methods and the way to think about education from a research lens, I think an accumulation of those experiences then sort of culminates at some point into that identity. Um, I don't think it happens at one particular point, but I do think, you know, there is some sort of period of time, you know, maybe during my pre-tenure days when uh, that was a label I was very comfortable with and very happy to take on and own and defend if need be. Um, and follow through on what that looks like. Okay, let's take this question now and, and turn it around the other way. What do you think people sort of envision in their minds or what do they think whenever you tell them, I'm a biologist, I'm a science educator, or these things? What do you think that students or your friends or your family start to think about <laughs> that when they hear it as part of your, well, how you identify yourself? Well, you just listed a lot of very different constituents. <laughs> so I did that on purpose. So uh, I, I know, I know, I know. But and, and because and so as you know, then the 
depending on which constituent we're talking to, the answer is different, right? Um, I actually find it kind of fascinating. If I'm in just casual conversation and I mention I'm a professor, the first question people ask is, what do I teach? And it's, it's I mean, I'm batting 99% on that pretty much, right? Like, it's, it's, it's very clear to me, at least anecdotally in my experience, that the immediate perception of what a professor does is to teach. And we could... We could unpack what actually happens in your real life <laughs> to have right. a different conversation, but I think I think that's one thing to be noted. Um, I, I think that when it comes to education research, um, the maybe simplest way people might think about it is that you you think about how to make classrooms better, you think about how to make teaching better. I don't know if most people think beyond that like what does that look like what does it mean to make a classroom or a teaching practice better um i i know uh, there were friends of mine who i don't think they mean to do this but sometimes i think when you tell people you're a biologist you know i would have friends say oh can you tell me what this species of plant is like well i'm not that kind of biologist so there was this this sort of this right this sort of sense that like oh so now you can identify any living organism no matter what you can tell us every single whale species out there it's like well i don't study that right you know so uh, i i get that in the public space this whole notion of specialists could it just is not the first thing we jump to and Biology is a very general to make it mean a hundred different things, and so it, it's it's a laughing point when I have to make that correction. But um, I, I I know this is not quite the question you're asking, or maybe it kind of is. In that, I think there is a, a challenge, a good challenge that people like myself have to take on to be able to have a really effective elevator pitch. You know, um, academia is a space that traffics in esoteric language and you know exclusivity and um almost to the point where it 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 sometimes sometimes there's an attitude that is beneath people to explain to the quote-unquote common person what you do um but i i do feel like you should be able to say in two to three sentences what you do and why it matters um to anybody and and uh you know almost understanding that Yes, there are things I language I use every day in what I write and how I speak to colleagues that doesn't make sense to use in a bar, for example, right? But but especially for the kind of work I do, which is meant to really help the human condition in very real and tangible ways, um, I, I I I welcome the challenge of having to kind of say that right in any kind of interaction, any kind of context. Well, that's that's really getting at what I, I want to talk about in detail with you now that relates to your educational work is in a lot of the the work that you've done you've shown that it's not just enough to introduce new modules or or new activities in a classroom but you really have to start thinking about the role that classes and educators play in helping a student develop their their identity as a scientist so why do you think Mm -hmm. that that is such an important thing for us to begin considering now as, as educators, this, this idea of helping our students develop not just what they need to know, but really the kind of people we want them to be or help them become the person they want to be. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, I just want to be very clear to listeners that a lot of this, what I've written and talked about with respect to what you just said, is not necessarily new. And, you know, education being 
an essentially humanistic endeavor. Um, is is very popular and well understood, well kind of well hold, honed in in K twelve education. I think it's higher red who who've really been behind the eight ball for decades. Um, and there's a whole list of reasons for that, right? Um, what has driven us to this point is, you know, statistics that you well know of, of, of graduation rates that are different depending on how this disaggregate the data, retention rates that are different. And so as, as people start to become more willing to look at the problem and look at the fact that, that the, the outcomes of higher ed are not equitable, they've had to now take 10 steps back and look at the reasons, right? And initially it was all cognitive. It was all like, well, maybe not cognitive, more like deficit, like we need to do better, to get better students and all of this kind of stuff. And, and we, we slowly but surely inched our way to this space where, oh, by the way, this is a human being, <laughs> right? And, and they, they are more invested in something. They are more motivated to, to be their best self in a situation when their social belonging needs are met, when they feel like there's belief from the experts in the room, when they feel like they are part of a community that supports and validates their identity, when they, be, when they can see a, a, a future vision of themselves that they can aspire to, right? So all of these things that I just mentioned have nothing to do with being a really good chemist. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a good chemist. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a subject matter expert, but you can't ignore the humanity of this individual in order just to make them a content expert. So it's, it's you know, this the, the work that has informed that thinking is not, it didn't come out last year, Phil, right? It came out, you know, years and years and years. I think it's we in higher ed, it just took us a long time to get to a space where we understand it, we're willing to read that literature, we're willing to apply that to our teaching, we're willing to assess our classrooms and our practice in that way. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that we're getting there. I'm glad that we're getting there. Yeah, we've definitely taken some some great steps, and and I think even we can say since the pandemic, it's required a lot of us to reconsider how we're approaching things, why we're approaching things, the the topics that we're even bringing in, and and thinking about content versus you know just whether it really needs to be there or if there's other ways we can approach the material that aren't just running through a list of facts. And so right. what what I, I've always been just so thoroughly impressed by that I've heard you talking about is with these different academic positions you've taken, you've taken the time to read some history of these areas and learn about the people you're teaching. Can you tell the, the listeners a little bit about that and why you think that was such a vital step in understanding your students? Yeah, I mean, that is, it's, it's sort of building on the point that I made right uh, just now in that i guess one benefit i've had phil is that i never i was never wired to just do the content thing right i was never and i want to be clear because sometimes people assume when they hear things like you know inclusive teaching it's like a, a repudiation of all content and that's not what it is i i love biology i love teaching biology i love talking about it i love seeing students get excited about it. But but I never saw the process of education as divorced from the humans humans involved in it. And I had some negative experiences that as, as an undergraduate that I definitely walked away saying, oh my God, 
there has to be some better way to do this class than that. <laughs> right? and, and so when I had the privilege to have my own classroom, um, I would reflect on the people, the, the professors in my own journey, which was not most of them, who took the time to get to know me as an individual, who, who, who asked me questions, not about you know, how much I'm studying or all of that stuff. They, just, they asked me my, my why, right? What's my sense of purpose and what are the things that make me want to do this subject so well um, or pursue this particular degree, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I saw examples. I had witnessed two examples of people who took that humanistic approach, um, not just with me, but with other people and how it allowed people to persist, right? And so that, that humanism has to be authentic. And what makes it authentic is I, I need to know you beyond your student ID number, right? I need to know you other than you just registered for this class. I have X amount of weeks with you, and then we all say goodbye, and then we rinse and repeat, right? I'm not saying that you and I need to become best friends. <laughs> I'm saying that, if I know a bit more about your history, I am naturally more empathetic towards some of the things in that history that may present challenges for you in the classroom. I am not necessarily saying that that those challenges are deterministic. I'm not saying that, you know, if you come from certain neighbors, you will definitely struggle in my class or in higher ed. But I also read the research that, that shows strong correlations of certain dynamics, right, of income level, of, of certain zip codes of, you know, so so when, when you get there, I can't solve all of the social trauma with intro bio, but I have a better sense of what it means for you to not feel like you belong. I have a better sense of what it means for you to feel like you don't have confidence right now, right? And how that plays out in, say, University of Rhode Island, where I used to, to, to work, is different to how it might play out at FIU, where I am now. Right, so this is a, you know, the, the, the civil rights era had a had a quote called a phrase that sort of cast your bucket where you are. You know, you take time to understand your context before you decide what strategies are appropriate for the outcomes that you want. Right, so I mean, without taking up the rest of your podcast talking about what I'd look like in Rhode Island and what it looked like in Miami, but that's that that's what I meant. So if I understood that the students who came from you know, Providence and the schools they came from, the curriculum they had. And I asked the right questions about why they want to be a scientist and why they chose to come to URI or take my class. It, it makes the things that I do in the classroom a lot more authentic. You mentioned in your answer things like a, a sense of belonging or whether they can do this. So what are some of the things that, you know, you've learned that students think or encounter when they come into a classroom? And how can educators help fix that or, or make them feel like they belong or that they can do this work? Hmm. How much time do we have, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, well, I say that half-jokingly in that there are a lot of things to make students feel like they belong. So I, I think what I want to do is take a couple steps back and say, look, if you, if you begin the experience by building authentic relationships, then the, the specific strategies that you choose to make that relationship be continued, uh, continually authentic and, and based on trust to become much more apparent to you 
based on how you set that relationship up, right? So I'll just give you an example. One of the things that I do when I start classes, I have students write a, a reflective essay called This I Believe, which I shamelessly stole from NPR. I, I donate to NPR, so it's not stealing, but anyway. And in that essay, they write in 500 words or less what their sense of why is. Like, what, what is their why? What are the values that shape their passion? And, you know, we can get into the affirmation theory space, you know, the way they affirm their values has been shown to, to give them opportunities and agency to kind of arrest their reality for them. It, it has shown to disproportionately impact minoritized students in a much more positive way, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, that's kind of part of it. But they also give me practical information that I act on, right? So when they tell me things like, you know, I was never really a science person, what that is then telling me, oh, no, 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 you actually probably didn't have good experiences in science up until this point. So now what I need to do is make sure that you can get some wins, right? Make sure that you have opportunities in the early part of the class in particular, where you can see that this is a subject that you can do very, very well. Right. So in following up on that kind of information, right, and ensuring that they can see that, hey, you can do well. Here's some mistakes you made. Next time you can do a little bit better. Now it becomes empirical. Right. Now it, it, it moves from I think I can do science or I think I can't do science too. Here is evidence that you took on a technical thing and did it well. And because I am working with you on and showing you those strategies, that just inherently, that deepens the trust between us. Because you know, first, you know that I, I believe, right? I, I inherently believe that you can do this. Right. But then I'm following up on that belief, right, with a strategy based on my experience that I know will work. And for you to see the evidence coming from your own, from your own practice, right, from your own attempt at this, right, to see that it will work. And that's just one of a hundred things. But I just wanted to make sure I walk listeners through the, I haven't met you. I want to get to know you, right? As we get to know each other, I'm picking up things that I can help you see in yourself, right? And then as you see those things in yourself and you, you've seen that I've helped you walk you to that well, <laughs> that is what sustains and builds the trust. Excellent. That's great advice. I think there's, there's good advice there for both teachers and students that, they need to understand that building these relationships are critical to the educational activities that they're mm -hmm. going to take uh, take place in, in that classroom. And so as you, as you think about this project and this work you've done in STEM education, what did you think it was going to be like or what did you think you were going to find when you started? And then what did it eventually turn out to be? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, it's an NPR question. I steal from them, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's a good question because I feel I feel like in 2014, I got into science education research. And maybe this is just a personal belief, but I, I feel like the field was still trying to find itself. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that's very natural for something that is relatively nascent, Right. Um, and, and so if you're a new faculty member in that space, you know, what you, what tends to happen because just as a, as a kind of a bubble effect, right? A lot of people come from certain labs and then carry on those research questions when they start their labs. 
And then we have a society, the um, SAVA Society for the Advancement of Biology Education Research, which wasn't that large at the time. So I felt that a lot of the new research ideas and the new questions being asked were still mostly tangential to existing ones. And, and, and this is everything from the ideas to the methods chosen to, you know, the way data would get looked at. And, and part of that was reflective, I think, of, of STEM bias, right? All of us came from some STEM basic discipline and brought our methods to this space. And I think there was, there was and is good value to that. But there's also ways in which that can be restrictive. So when I started... I was I was and always was interested in in this this classroom as a really complex ecosystem and as a place where so much dynamics is, are happening and and so much relationships are being built and reshaped and 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 uh, destroyed and rebuilt uh, where people are forming and reforming themselves over this this discrete period of time like I I never really looked at it as okay, how do I get more students to get A's, right? <laughs> I looked at it as a, a microcosm of what society really aspires to be, right? And, and that's, that's sort of what has always driven my practice as a teacher and the kinds of questions that I'm interested in as a researcher in, you know, what element of this, of this interaction is both reflective of but contributing to a more perfect society that we are trying to kind of evolve into. So I, I think at the beginning, everything was, was a, a lot of it was very kind of quant heavy, right? A lot of questions of, if you do this, would this change? If you do that, would that change? And would it do better, et cetera? But we quickly, and, and especially driven by some, some couple of early grad students that I had who, were, um, you know, who had deep expertise in qualitative space, like we pivoted quickly into asking more questions about human behavior and human um, and well, not just human behavior, but the, the, the sort of politics of education praxis, right? And once you once you start getting into that, that opens up like a barrage of things, right? It gets into science and technology studies. It gets into um, deliberative democracy in classrooms. It gets into broader questions of formal education and and um, and uh, democratic participation. It gets into institutional practices. Um, so I, I think where we are now has been a, a, a natural but very quick evolution into, you know, if to really understand what's happening in that micro, microcosm, we have to understand more what's happening in the kind of whole ecosystem, right? Um, and it's going to still involve some of the quant stuff, but I think, uh, you know, hopefully the, one of the unique contributions we sort of bring to this field or bring to this question is, is the way in which we understand the human story of the students, of the faculty, of administrators, of the people involved in this process and all the nuance that that brings. Um, and that's, that's, that's where we are right now. So interview me in two years and we'll see what happens. I will put that in the schedule and I will talk to you in two years <laughs> for sure. But I think you said something incredibly powerful there that is a different way of considering the classroom, both for the instructor and I think for the students, that it is an ecosystem that represents a larger world. I mean, one of the things I know you've said in the past is that you don't consider this as repeating a class necessarily. You've got a whole new group of students. And mm -hmm. so it's never the mm -hmm. same class. Um, you're probably like me and you switch the topics j up just a little bit so that you're 
over many years covering everything, but you get your different sets. And so I think that's, that's a healthy attitude that, that we need to foster more of thinking about this ecosystem idea of the classroom and less about, you know, just what we're telling the students or the, the measurements we're making on them, but really what's mm-hmm. happening and how are they growing. And so as we, we bring this to an end, the question I'd, I'd like to, to ask is what advice would you give to a student who maybe is listening to this podcast to think about their development of their scientific identity and, and how that fits into their larger identity as, as just a person? And then what advice would you give to faculty to think about how they can help foster this process and, and have successful outcomes for students beyond just, as you said, more A's, but really help these students become the people they want to be? Yeah, um, that's a really, really good question. Um, I, I'll start with students since you did. I, I think I, I want to ask and hopefully um, advise students to, to understand that science and science education and the classes that you take, this is a process in which you have agency. Um, be very the very uh, the kind of default thinking of it when people just sort of think of what colleges and what college classrooms look like. I think it's still, you know, you're in a seat or you're online or whatever, and then somebody who is very spirit in this area is telling you a bunch of stuff. And I, and I fully accede that, you know, there are a lot more classes that are active now. There are a lot more. There's a lot we've come a long way from, say, even 10 years ago. And I also don't want to be dismissive of the fact that faculty do, in fact, have expertise. And there is there is a lot of benefit to be derived from that, right? But just be mindful of any dynamic of, you know, you're in that, and I'm still talking to students here, of you being in that space to actualize into the person in front of you, right? You, you have all the rights in the world to, to pay respect and homage to the strategies, the theories, the frameworks, the knowledge that has gotten us this far as a society and understand that thoroughly. And the agency you now have is to shape the world that you are about to be a part of, or that you are currently a part of, but you are about to lead and help lead and help push forward, right? That, that's where the education becomes less passive and more transformative. You're not just receiving something. You're actually you're receiving something with the intent to find something new, and not just new, but new and better. Um, and so then the advice of faculty is to find a way to step out of all of the, the structures and the, the the formalities and the logistics and mechanics of 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 what it means to teach a course you know you have to have a grade you have to do this you have to i I know my my tone of voice sounds like i'm just trying to dismiss it i'm I'm not really i i but i i do i've run several several workshops for that as you know and every time i ask faculty what it is they hope students get from their course nobody ever tells me i hope they get an a Everybody always says things like, I want them to be a good citizen. I want them to understand the, the role of science in everyday life. I want them to be critical thinkers. 
So we know deep down that we don't do this for A's and B's. We do this for something that's much more meaningful. And so the challenge you just have to have as an instructor is to really ask yourself, am I doing things that are getting at those meaningful attributes that, that, you, that you typically espouse? And are the conventional structures of, of, of the way grading is tends to be currently and the way semesters are set up, are those things preventing us from, from reaching those aspirational goals for a course? Um, if the answer is no, and the things you might need to, to learn to do and, and you know, be brave enough to get into may require some professional development outside of what you might typically you know, um, be engaged in right now. And that's okay, but that, that to me is the, is the next challenge for, for teaching and teaching in higher ed, right? Is, is really think of those 30,000 foot broader social democratic goals and ask ourselves in every course, where are they being applied? That's an excellent note to end on. And so we will stop the interview there. I want to thank you again for taking time to talk with us. And I hope that, oh, let's not wait two years. I hope we can find some time to talk before then. <laughs> so thanks again, Brian. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Uh, you too, man. Take care. That brings us to the end of my conversation with Dr. Brian Dewsbury. His insights into how different aspects of the interaction between faculty and students shape the development of a student's scientific identity are nothing short of inspiring for me. Absolutely, Phil. As a student, it made me think of how we are members of the scientific community, no matter what stage you might be at in your education. It's not something that happens at the end of class or even when you get handed your diploma. It develops over time. His work also highlights the importance of mentorship and how developing an identity as a scientist is important to help students reach their full potential in the world of science. You know, Sam, another thing I thought was interesting about Dr. Dewsbury's work is how he described that someone's science identity is not a single or even a static thing. You know, Dr. Dewsbury's own experiences show how it can be different things in different contexts and that they can change over the course of a career. But where it all starts is with faculty creating these welcoming learning environments where students from all backgrounds have the potential to excel in the sciences. It's all a reminder to me that educators need to challenge existing habits, norms, and biases to truly make science accessible to everyone. Well, we hope this episode has inspired you to not only reflect on your own science identity and consider how important it is to us as scientists, but to also think about the role we play as mentors and educators in supporting its development in our students as they think about their own science identity. You can learn more about Dr. Dewsbury and his work on the Science Education and Society website at seasprogram.net, and SEAS is spelled S-E-A-S. And if you enjoyed today's episode and found it as enlightening as we did, please consider sharing it with your friends, family, and colleagues. The more people we reach, the more impact we can have on reshaping the STEM education landscape. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Biota so you won't miss any future episodes. We have some fascinating stories and incredible guests lined up for you. There are also interesting stories in past episodes, so you should check those out. Thanks for joining me in the studio today, Sam. This was a lot of fun. And thanks to our listeners for sharing your time with us today. We appreciate you tremendously and look forward to having you back with us on our next journey into the world of science. You can learn more about the Biota podcast and related resources at my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. 
So until next time, thanks for listening. Have a great day and take very good care of your DNA. Stay curious, everyone. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.